Hi, welcome to episode three of the Conservation Crossroads podcast. My name is Carla Archibald. And I'm Rachel Friedman. And today... We're in the middle of the plastic age. Hey Carla, you enjoying that cup of coffee? Of course, who doesn't like coffee? Well, maybe you should rethink that daily coffee habit of yours. That coffee cup is lined with plastic and isn't recyclable. Your cup and other disposable containers contribute to the growing amounts of plastic polluting ecosystems around the world. It's true. In Australia, over 100 takeaway coffee cups are discarded every one, two, three, four seconds. That's two and a half million cups in one day. Globally, 8 million tons of plastic waste ends up in our oceans every year. I just don't get it. How is it that the oceans have become our global plastics rubbish bin? It's not like there's one at each country's disposal. Well, that's part of the problem. Oceans are vast and connected landscapes, so pollution that's dumped in one part of the world might end up in another. About two-thirds of the world's oceans are considered international waters, and most of the ocean's water falls into this commons bucket. So essentially, keeping our oceans clean is the responsibility of everyone, and no one. This makes plastic pollution a really hard environmental problem to tackle. Today we are talking to one researcher who focuses on the threat of plastics pollution to the environment, and another who looks at how to avoid some of the problems associated with the creation of plastics. Stephanie Avery Gom is a researcher from the University of Queensland who's been working on assessing the extent of plastic pollution and the impacts of plastics on wildlife. So there's two sort of ways to look at it. So the majority of plastic comes from land, and so you're going to find the most marine plastic pollution around large population centers, particularly in areas that don't have good waste management practices. And if you're talking about, you know, the ocean at large, plastics accumulate in these convergent gyres. And so the ocean currents and the, the, the winds on the planet circulate the oceans in some of the gyres are convergent, and so the plastic kind of gets swept up in them and slowly circulates around the ocean. But those areas of high concentrations of plastic aren't actually these sort of patches like people say that they are. They're basically the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is a bit of a misnomer because it's not something you can see from space. It may be the size of Texas, but it's not solid, right? It's on a floating island. It's more like a confetti soup. Mmm, confetti soup. Plastics seem to be just about everywhere in the oceans. But what does this mean for that fish, or say the bird, living amongst it? A lot of Stephanie's research has focused on using birds to monitor plastics in our environment. So there was a study several years ago which showed that plastics in the marine environment really absorb contaminants, like um, PBDEs, which are flame retardants, and PCBs, so all of these uh, persistent organic Uh, pollutants that are in the ocean at sort of low concentrations will glob on to plastics. And so one of the concerns is that if animals then eat plastic, whether or not those contaminants are getting into the animals. One of the sort of issues with studying it is that uh, marine animals also get contaminants from their food. So 
those contaminants also bioaccumulate. And so you don't really know is the contaminant level that you're detecting in an animal from the plastic or from their food, and is plastic really a significant source of that contaminant? Plastics can um, absorb contaminants from the marine environment, but plastics are made flexible by the addition of plasticizers, and those are not bound to plastics, and so they actually can leach into the tissues of animals a lot more readily. Um, and they're, they're only coming from plastic. So if you find a plasticizer in the tissues of an animal, you know it came from plastic, it wasn't bioaccumulated. Mm -hmm. And we are still starting to understand um, the impacts of, of plasticizers on, uh, on animals, on their reproduction, on their health. You already talked about the impact of plastic, mm. the potential impacts of plastic on wildlife. Right. You've also looked at using wildlife to understand the problem right as exactly well. yeah so when I started working on plastic pollution it was uh, I was interested in understanding whether or not plastic pollution was a problem in Canadian Pacific waters because that's where I grew up and one of the best ways to to do that is actually to use uh, the northern fulmar which is a seabird species because you can use the stomach content of a northern fulmar as a snapshot of plastic pollution in the area over which that bird has served, uh, has been foraging this is really great because to actually get ship time to go out on a boat and trawl the surface of the water for plastic and process water samples is really expensive. So the Fulmar kind of do the work for us. We can start to understand the scale and the impact of plastic pollution using wildlife. But what's the impact of plastic pollution on wildlife specifically and how does it stack up against a range of other threats? So that's a really good question, and it's one that I, I, I actually think about a lot because I got interested in plastic pollution, and now that I'm sort of working in the field of decision science, thinking about where should we spend our conservation dollars, I'm not entirely convinced that for the sake of some wildlife species, we need to deal with plastic pollution. Um, we don't really yet fully understand the impacts of plastic ingestion on animals and until we do it's going to be really hard to rank plastic relative to other threats which cause direct mortality. So if we're talking about seabirds, um, predation of chicks and eggs and adults by um, non-native species such as cats and rats, that's directly impacting the population. Plastics seem to be more of an indirect threat to wildlife, but they do accumulate in the environment and we're still working to better understand what that actually means for conserving wildlife. So Stephanie gave us a few ways she thinks we can combat our plastic pollution problem. So, so plastic has only been around for about 60 years and it is now everywhere. To solve the plastic pollution problem, it's going to take innovating new products to replace plastic and getting people to revisit the whole reduce, reuse, recycle thing as individuals, but also coming up with closed loop systems so that once plastic is used, it can be turned into a new product because you can't truly recycle plastic back into the thing that it started as. Um, and so you're really downcycling. And, and so that is eventually a dead end. Um, we need to clean up what's out there. But I think if I had a big chunk of money and I wanted to solve the problem uh, to the greatest extent, I would focus on keeping plastic out of the oceans. Easy, there you go. Problem solved. Hang on a sec. Aren't we curious to learn more about the potential solutions? Yeah, that would be the responsible thing to do. Well, luckily we tracked down someone working on this side of the plastic pollution's problem. 
Hi, my name is Leila Dilks Hoffman. I'm a PhD student at the University of Queensland. I'm in the School of Chemical Engineering, working with the Polymer Group on biodegradable plastics. My specific area of research is on the development and sustainability analysis of biodegradable food packaging. The first thing we spoke to Leela about was the main way we deal with plastic waste, recycling, which is surprisingly more complicated than you would think. Effective recycling is a really important aspect of being able to deal with plastics after their useful life, aiming to retain the value of the plastic in the system and therefore reduce the need for new plastic production. Unfortunately, we do need to improve in this area as globally only 14% of plastic packaging is collected for recycling and it's estimated only 2% of this actually undergoes closed loop recycling. And so this is where the recycled plastic can actually be used to make an item of equivalent functionality as the initial item. Um, an example of this is bottle to bottle recycling. The rest normally undergoes downcycling, which is when, uh, for example, you might take food packaging and make it into a bench. So the topic of recycling, I also want to quickly discuss what we technically mean by this word. So normally we'll be thinking of mechanical recycling, which is where we separate all the different plastic types, grind them up, clean the plastic flakes, and then remelt these flakes into a new product. So this works well for plastics that we can separate out easily. So for example, again, our plastic milk bottle, which is clear and made of one plastic type. However, many plastics can be hard to separate out into pure single color streams. Uh, and this hard to separate fraction is actually growing in food packaging with the rise in multi-layer materials, which have different layers of different plastic types all within the same package. Then when you melt down this sort of material, um, you can never actually produce another packaging with the same quality as originally. So it's high recycling rates are certainly the end goal and I believe we will reach it, uh, but we still have some work to get there. Okay, great. So the one solution that everyone puts all of their effort into has lots of problems, but that's not to say that recycling and even the plastic supply chain more broadly doesn't have some pretty high tech innovation to fill these gaps. There are certainly lots of great innovations happening in the plastic space, right through from the design of what sort of plastic products we're going to use uh, all the way through to how we're going to recycle them. So for example, in the design space, I've heard of an origami inspired takeaway coffee cup, which can be folded such that you don't need a separate lid and this improves on our current two-piece design. Then in the recycling space, I know that there are companies uh, working on very efficient sorting systems, which can separate out mixed plastic waste, waste streams with very high accuracy. I also know of a company which is looking at how to convert the plastic stream that is just too hard to separate back into a crude oil-like substance through a process called pyrolysis with the view that this can then be put back into a plastic production process and we can actually get our closed loop plastics circulating back to plastics system. Even if we can improve recycling techniques and make better plastics, that alone won't stop our global plastic pollution problem. Leela shared her thoughts on dealing with some bigger systemic challenges. Basically, there are a few key target areas. In regards to preventing entrance of plastics into the marine environment, the key target is to establish adequate waste and collection infrastructure in the countries that we know contribute the largest volumes of mismanaged waste. So Southeast Asia is one of these target regions and there are groups working in this area to improve the waste management there. In terms of a global shift towards a plastic system that works, 
it's really important to establish cross-value chain dialogue. So this means ensuring that designers, plastic producers, big brands and waste handlers are all communicating to ensure that there's synchronicity across each step of plastics production and use and that every individual player is acting with the whole system in mind. And I think the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is an organisation doing really good work in this space. Thankfully, it's not all up to big business and policymakers. As individuals, you and I should feel driven and empowered to combat plastic pollution. My personal belief is that as citizens and consumers, we should also feel empowered to address the issue of plastic pollution. So certainly reducing and reusing are key aspects towards addressing the issue of personal plastic consumption. I also believe in supporting the sort of products that we want to see on the market, such as innovative delivery, format, delivery formats that reduce packaging use, uh, companies that offer reusable packaging, or companies that make commitments towards recycled content. So we need the big brands to make the big global shifts, but personally, I also like to feel that I can play a role. Well, it doesn't seem like plastics themselves are going away anytime soon, but one way to incite change is by encouraging kids from a young age to start questioning what they observe and think about what solutions that they can implement. Yeah. Is that a sandcastle? Yeah. So you've drawn a picture of a sandcastle and a girl and there's garbage on the beach. Yeah. Well, what are you interested in knowing about the plastic? Yeah, um, how does rubbish affect sea animals? And the sub-question is, how does rubbish look in the sea? I'm not sure whether to cry or feel hopeful after that. I feel hopeful. But oh my god, Rachel, that episode was so long. Yeah, but plastics are everywhere these days. You know I've been sending you all those articles about how if you use sea salt, or eat seafood, or I don't know, drink water. Or breathe air? Yes, you might unknowingly be ingesting plastic. I mean, what can we do these days without plastic somehow being involved? Right, well, if the rest of you want to keep the discussion going, or if you have any new ideas for episodes, please send us a tweet using the hashtag, hashtag Conservation Crossroads, and we'll also be putting all of the links to the projects and the researchers in the episode's description. We look forward to tackling the next big issues in conservation with you and exploring paths forward from this conservation crossroads.